Last time I stood before you, we looked at a number of things in the Word of God, and God, I don't know if anybody else got a blessing or not, but God blessed my heart and spoke to me. I rejoice that God's a speaking God, and He gives us the ability to hear what He has to say. And we looked at mainly, primarily, the struggle involved in the lives of those who aspire to be filled with the Spirit of God, to be led of the Spirit of God. We looked at several scriptures which prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the true Christian, as long as he's on this earth, is going to be in a struggle. He's going to be in a battle. I mean, I mean, every breath that we breathe is going to involve struggle. Some of the struggle we'll never know about. It's a spiritual struggle that goes on all around us, and we'll, we'll never know about it this side of eternity. But it's a constant battle that we see. And we examine four arenas that appear on the battlefield that Sunday, pride and worldliness and slothfulness and covetousness. And all of these, every one of them, has to be overcome in order for us to have the one thing that sets us apart from every other human being on earth, and that's contentment. The presence of the Holy Ghost of God is manifestly seen in a life that's content in spite of the circumstances. In spite of all that's going on, they're resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to, this morning, just to think about Again, further in a little bit more detail, the thoughts that we, we looked at the week before last, to realize that even though uh, there's a lot of, there are a lot of outward circumstances that seem to be overwhelming and they seem to overpower us and they seem to be getting the best of us, that all the time the inward work of the Holy Ghost of God is bringing about a change in us. Not a change in our circumstances, but a change in us. And that's the key to our survival, our spiritual survival in this maddening age. Contentment. We are prone to and quite easily are able to give people advice when they're having problems and we say, be content. Trust the Lord, be content. But I fear that very few of us really know what it means to not only freely submit to the providence of God, but get to the place where we delight in the providence of God. Delight in even the adverse circumstances, the bad things that are happening. 
And until then, we know absolutely nothing about biblical contentment. Today, as we think about this, I, as I said, I want to just carry this examination a little bit further, a little deeper. And I want us to observe some things in the Bible that will clarify the problem that we have as human beings in learning to see things from God's perspective and learning this attitude. This is really not an attitude. It's a way of life of contentment. First of all, I want to say, and we're going to look at the scriptures that prove this, so turn back to the 12th chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. I want us to observe the other side of the Christian life, the life of contentment, the way of peace and the way of joy. I want us to look at the other side of it, the other perspective that we have here. And that is a picture of a murmuring, complaining, griping spirit. When I, when I think of such a, a spirit or such an a, a attitude in an individual or a people, I can't help but be drawn back to the wilderness experience of the children of Israel because it seems like if you had to pick one word to describe them during that whole time, it was murmur, <laughs> complain, and gripe about what was going on. And so that's what I want to read to you about this morning and contemplate together with you this morning. Why? Why would they behave in such a way, so foolishly? Well, there are a lot of reasons. But here's one of the main reasons. We're going to read about it now in this 12th chapter of Exodus. Let, let's begin with uh, verse 33. And you know the background. God had just slain the firstborn of the Egyptians and the Pharaoh and other Egyptians were telling the Israelites, get out, get out, get out. It, whatever you do, just get out. Verse 33. And the Egyptians were urging upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading trough, uh, being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside the children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. I want to stop reading this. Most of the problem 
that the children of Israel encountered in their wilderness journey was brought about by the circumstance that we read here in that 38th verse. And a mixed multitude went up also. A mixed multitude. That is, those beside the Israelites, Egyptians, if you please, who were going to make the journey with them. A motley crowd, a crowd of misfits and malcontents. Here's a group of people that uh, didn't like Egypt for whatever reason it might be, their own personal reason. They didn't like Egypt. And they were nothing more than uh, opportunistic parasites grabbing and seizing on an opportunity now to get away from Egypt and to suck the life, so to speak, out of the children of God and live off <clears throat> of the God of the Israelites. Seized upon a good thing when they saw it. And I say unto you today that <clears throat> the church as a whole is full of a lot of these opportunistic parasites. They don't really hate Egypt. They just don't like it for personal reasons, and they seize upon God and the church as an opportunity to escape some things. They're not really enthusiastic about what God's doing and the work of God, but it's an opportunity for change at least, so they join the church. Now, we don't know what their true reason was here in the passage that we've read for going on this journey or embarking on this journey. But at the onset, at the very beginning, it appears right here where we're reading, it appears that their motives may be sincere. Right now, it appears that way. We learn later that they weren't, but it appears that they are sincere in getting in the race. but they didn't understand the purpose of the children of Israel being carried to Canaan. There is, there is no reason, no reason at this point to go into the history of the Israelites and to show all the things that God did in Egypt while they were there, the, the struggles and the toils and the slavery and the beatings and the killings and all of that. And yet I say unto you that it did not take the children of Israel very long to forget the bondage that they had been in. They forgot what God had delivered them from. And our primary concern in this this morning is this. Their deliverance from bondage. But the baggage they brought with them when they got out. Do you understand that? You see, they did some very foolish things in their zeal. And brothers and sisters, I declare unto you today that sometimes we do some very foolish things in our zeal. In our desire to get something done, something accomplished. We oftentimes fly off half cock, and when we look back at it later, we regret what we did. And the day would come in the life of these people, these Israelites, that they would regret what they did in bringing out this motley crew with them. 
as we shall see later. They either, in their zeal, proselyted or coerced or at least encouraged these people to accompany them to Canaan. It never dawned on them that they were carrying, in, carrying in part at least, the very cause of their misery. Was it not the Egyptians who was the cause of the misery of the Israelites while they were in Egypt? Was, was that not the cause of their misery? And yet, as they left, they carried at least a seed from which further misery could grow and most probably would grow. They could not leave all of Egypt there. And they did not. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know a better word. I'm trying to think of another word besides stupid, but I can't think of one. Because that's the thought I want to convey. It's a stupid assumption to believe that life in the Spirit is possible <clears throat> if we just bring a little bit of Egypt with us. Did you get that? We assume that we can have everything that God has for us even though we keep some things from the world for ourselves. And that's not so. Now, we don't want to bring a lot with us. A lot of things we don't, want to, we don't want to bring with us. We don't want to bring all the, the drunkenness that we were in or the dope that we were in or all the things that we were in. We, we don't want to bring that with us. We're glad to leave that. But, but there's a few little things we'd like to have along for the journey. You see, they didn't even have time to let the dough rise and the bread. The kneading cross were already packed. But in spite of that, in spite of that, the devil still managed to bring along or to send along with them the, th the very thing that would keep this group from ever entering into Canaan. <clears throat> I say to you, whatever you've tried to bring with you out of Egypt, it's going to lead to great distress and calamity. Let's read. We're going to skip a lot now in the history here and turn over to Numbers, the 11th chapter. Numbers chapter 11. And it'll begin to unfold for you now as we look at this. And let's just read the first three verses. And when the people complained, and that word complained means murmured. It displeased. It didn't just displease in the sense that God was unhappy. It was an evil thing in the eyes of God and in the ears of God. The complaining. It's more than just being upset. 
God saw it as a wicked, evil act. It displeased the Lord. The Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place, Taberah, that is, a burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, as we read the next few verses, we learn something of the reason for their murmuring because it says in verse 4, the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. It wasn't the people of God here at this point who fell a lusting. It was the mixed multitude that they had brought along with them. They fell a lusting. And the children of Israel, look at that little word there, also also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Well, they'd been eating manna. I have no doubt that the children of God probably could have eaten manna all the way into Canaan, but they started listening to the mixed multitude that was complaining about the manna. They heard the mixed multitude, and so they began to say in verse 5, We remember the fish. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. They didn't remember the bondage. They didn't remember the stripes. They didn't remember all of the horrible things that happened to them, the torture of their bodies physically. They didn't remember the murder of, of, of their brothers and kinsmen. They didn't remember that. What did they remember? Fish. Freely. Fish. The cucumbers. Now, so far, that sounds like a good southern meal, doesn't it? And they remembered that. The melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. It's amazing to me how readily some folks are ready to go back to the good things of Egypt and the pleasant things of Egypt, never realizing that to go back to them, you go back into the same bondage that goes along with it. They said, now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all, nothing at all, beside this manna. And I can almost hear the contempt in their voice. Nothing at all. I mean, after all, that was the provisions of Almighty God. They didn't plant a seed. They didn't water a thing. All they had to do was go out and pick what God provided. But you see, as I said the other day, contentment, contentment is... Knowing what we have and not wanting any more. Being satisfied with what God's given us. That's contentment. And they weren't satisfied with what God had given them. The manna 
the manna. You see what I'm saying is here they were agitated. They were stirred up. And it's always somebody that's there to agitate and to stir and to aggravate. Now, let's, let's go a little bit deeper into this. I want to pursue this thought a little bit further. The mixed multitude, outwardly now, I'm not talking about their physical features. There's some difference between the physical feature of the Egyptian and the Israelite, probably not a whole lot after they'd been there 400 years. But outwardly, the mixed multitude resemble the covenant people of God. They came out of Egypt with them. They were traveling toward Canaan with them. So outwardly, they had all the same appearance as if they were part of that covenant people of God. They seemed to want the same things. But the one fatal flaw that set them apart from the true people of God could not be seen in what they appeared to want. It can, however, be seen in what they did not want. And I want to talk to you for just a minute about what these mixed multitudes did not want. Number one, they did not want the proprietorship of God. I mean by that simply this. They wanted his protection, but they didn't want to be possessed by God. They didn't want to be submitted to the authority of Jehovah. Why, sure, every time the enemy stirred up, they'd run and get under his wing. You know anybody like that? I mean, on the outward appearance, they seem to be going the same place that we're going. They seem to have the same uh, goals and desires that we have, and yet they refuse to bow to God as sovereign. They don't want God to possess them. If the enemy comes, they'll seek God out. If troubles come, they'll seek God out. But that's the only time they seek God out. It's when they need something. They need something, so they seek him out. They wanted his provisions. They eagerly ate the food which he graciously sent. But they did not want to belong to him. Body, soul, and spirit. They were glad to have the pillar of fire at night. It brought them comfort. It brought them a certain amount of peace. They were glad to have that fire at night. They were glad to have a cloud by day. They welcomed it. They wanted the cloud. They wanted the fire. But here's the thing they did not want, and most people today do not want, they did not want the yoke of God. They rejected the yoke of God. They stiffened their necks. They bowed up. They balked against the commands of God. Here's what they did. They stuck their fingers in their ears when God spoke and when God 
gave the precepts through Moses. They rebelled against that. They rebelled against the discipline of God. And their rebellion afflicted the Israelites. Instead of the Israelites taking God's position, they did the opposite. They went with the murmurers. They joined in the wicked complaining. They joined in the rebellion against God. They refused to learn contentment, and they became like the mixed multitude. And by the way, they suffered the same consequences as did the multitude. Because we know that all along the way, their carcasses were laid out, one right after another, all the way from Egypt down to the promised land. And not one of this group, well, there were a couple, but none of the murmurers, none of, none of the complainers made it to the promised land. You see, what happens is Satan fosters a spirit of rebellion and, re and refusal to bow to the yoke of God. Anytime you see anybody stirred up against God and the things of God and the commandments of God and the voice of God, anytime you see somebody stirred up like that, you can be sure that it's a satanic work going on because the people of God have learned is to bow their neck and get in the yoke. But when God's people began to complain about their circumstances, they joined the ranks of the devil in shaking his fist against God. Now, I have to say again to you today, I'm not speaking from the lofty position of having attained contentment. I'm speaking to you from the battleground. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that I have attained contentment. But I'm saying to you, from the battleground itself, from the battlefield itself, we should be able to learn some things about what's going on around us. And they complained against God. They didn't want to bow to the will of God. They said, as a psalmist, no God, as, as according to the psalmist, the fool has said in his heart, no God for me. No God for me. So they didn't want that. i tell you something else they didn't want. They didn't want the hardships of the journey. Now, I think you understand that. They didn't, they didn't want all that was involved in God's way. Sure, they, they reveled in the conquest. Walk around, I mean, after God slew the enemies in front of them, they, they could kind of walk around and revel in the conquest. But they wanted it without the conflicts that are involved. Should God have lifted them in that cloud that was there every day and transported them over into Canaan and put them there without any sweat and without any tears, without any toil? They wouldn't have murmured. They wouldn't have complained. But God didn't choose to do it that way. And God hasn't chosen in this life for us to get there that way either. They despise the steep places. They, they loathe the painful experiences, the long periods when they went without water, the long periods when they had nothing to eat here but that plain food. 
They, they despise the sore muscles, the aches and the pains and the burning feet. They despise all of that. And their attitude was quickly picked up by the Israelites. It really was. You see, here's a redeemed people that had forgotten so much so quickly. They began to look back with the murmurs, and they began to look back with the complainers, and the sting of the whip on their back was gone and forgotten. The nights of weeping had escaped their memory, had slipped their mind. They could only remember those things that we read about here. Sweet Vidalia onions that you could eat like an apple. The leeks that were juicy and tasty. And that deep fried catfish. They could remember that. Concern about nothing but their outward circumstances. Not in the least bit concerned that God's doing a work in them. Only the outward circumstances. Canaan, Canaan, Canaan cannot be reached without the discipline that can only be learned in the journey there. I'm talking about Canaan in this lifetime. I'm talking about contentment in this lifetime. Discipline has to be learned from experiencing the hardships of the journey. So they didn't want that. They didn't want the hardships of the journey. I'll tell you something else they didn't want either. They really didn't want the fellowship of God's people. I mean the, the, the true people of God. They wanted their company, yes, for a number of different reasons, but not their companionship. They wanted the safety that exists in numbers, sure, but that's all that they wanted. They wanted sharing the benefits. And that's all. They didn't want the fellowship of God's people. I'll tell you something else they didn't want. They didn't want the leadership of God's man. They didn't want Moses to rule over them. Oh, they admired him. Certainly they did. They looked up to him, his ability. He was a great man. But you know what they did? They rejected his authority. Totally. They refused to follow him. And so they joined the mixed multitude in this insurrection. Now, I want to bring it up closer to where we are. Whenever you or I begin to despise the circumstances into which God put us, is he sovereign or not? Is he? We say he is, but when it comes down to right where the rubber meets the road, as they say, do we really believe he is? If he's sovereign, and we begin to kick against his providence 
then God has no recourse but to apply the chastening rod. There's no other way God can go. There's no other outlet for God. I mean, that's the way He operates. And if we begin to wallow in the, pre of the pleasures of Egypt and the good things of Egypt, I guarantee you one thing, you can be sure that if you're God's child, the rod's going to come across your back. It's unavoidable. So I want to talk to you for just a minute about the chastening rod of God. Because my brothers and my sisters and those of you who are here that aren't my brothers and my sisters, I want to assure you, I want you to know in no uncertain terms that until you can bow and find pleasure in the chastening rod of God, you know nothing about spiritual contentment.